Good morning, church. It is always good to, to be here and to see you all and to join our hearts together to recognize that Jesus is Lord and to God be the glory for great things he has most certainly done. And we're going to see that today as we continue in our series, our vision series for this year um, called Behold and Build. In particular, we're going to look at what God says about our households. And you may be thinking, we've taught on this quite a bit, and you're right, but there's much for us to learn uh, and much for us to see into the depths of God's heart regarding the household this morning. My kids love animals, okay? So much so that we all occasionally watch uh, National Geographic episodes, and um, I really enjoy doing that with them. But we'll watch funny videos sometimes too. And one in particular that I showed them recently is of an orangutan uh, driving a golf cart around a zoo property. It's very funny, okay? He casually drives around this zoo property, and he even passes a tiger's cage and kind of gives him the nod, like, hey, you're still there and I'm here. And the video is quite bewildering. And my kids love it. And they love it for at least two reasons. The first is that it's really funny to them to see an orangutan very confidently and very casually drive this golf cart around. It's funny to me too. But the second thing is that they're quite amazed. And they wonder, just how capable is this orangutan? Can he drive an automobile? Can he read and write? Can he fill in the blank? You name it. Their intrigue to the, at this always leads them to asking me questions about what can he do and what can't he do. And so I'm always explaining to them the differences between people and animals, even intelligent animals like apes. So this inevitably leads to a discussion about how God made people to understand the why and the how. See, an ape can understand that if he presses a button, an action or a consequence will inevitably happen, but he doesn't know the why. That orangutan would never be able to change the tire on the golf cart should it uh, go flat. Nor does he understand the mechanisms at work. But in God's good wisdom, he has made us to be creatures that not only understand the what, but he has made us to also understand the why and the how. So today, as we look again to what God's design for the household is, we must first understand the why and the how. This is crucial for us to do this morning. I would even say that the modern church has catastrophically failed in teaching God's standard for the household. We live in a world today that is characterized by the destruction of the household. Wherever you look in society, no matter the socioeconomic class, no matter the culture, the household is falling apart. Our own church, Rivertown Church, has seen divorces, adultery. We have seen faithless and disobedient children. And we have seen apostasy that has ripped apart families completely. And so this affects us all this morning. It's not an ethereal discussion, but something that must bear out in the here and now. And so we're not only going to see God's standard for the home this morning, but we are going to investigate the why and the how that we might behold Christ rightly 
and that we might rightly build our households in his name. And so our text this morning is going to be from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And in honor of God's word, if you are able, please stand at the reading of the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, your word to us is good because you are good. And we do pray that you would enlarge our hearts this morning by your spirit, that we might run in the way of your commandments. We want to have eyes that see and ears that hear. Let us not shriek back in fear of what your word has to say, but may we courageously bring ourselves before you, that you might sift us and sort us this morning, that you would have your will in your way among us, For we are your people, we are the sheep of your pasture. You are God and we are not, and so we submit ourselves to you. Please be magnified in us and through us this morning and give us great grace to hear you and to receive what it is you're saying to the church. In Christ's name we pray and ask all these things. Amen. You may be seated. So while our text proper this morning starts in Ephesians 5, we're going to do something a little different. And I emphasized for us that we need to know the why and the how in order to rightly understand the what. The book of Ephesians has two major halves to it. And I like to think of the first half as, uh, as that of regarding orthodoxy. Okay, orthodoxy. That's just simply a term that means established doctrine. Or put another way, what is correct belief as established by the scriptures? Okay, and the second half of Paul's letter is what I call orthopraxy, which is what is right living or right practice that accords with right belief. This is quite obvious if you read the letter as a whole. And so we don't rightly understand how to live. We we can acknowledge what it says and that God gives commands. But if we miss the why and the how, then we miss everything. Because God wants to remind us of what he's done for us. Great things he has done. Has he not? And so our impetus, our motivation to obey him must first be sourced from the overflow of his blessings to us. And so before we even deal with the the text this morning, we're going to back up and 
I'm going to give us a brief outline of the book of Ephesians. It will be quick, but I promise you it will be beneficial to us this morning. And as you hear these blessings, these gifts that are ours as the church in Christ Jesus, I want you to fill your heart with those things and believe them to be true. And then when we get to the commandments that deal with us this morning, know that we are blessed in Christ and that we obey not to please God, but because he has already, he, has, he is already pleased with us in Christ Jesus. And he lavishes on us his mercy and grace. And so in chapter 1, we see Paul's opening doxology. Doxology just means a blessing. We sing a doxology every service, but it's a blessing. And this doxology serves as the thesis, okay, the driving force of the whole letter. It's found in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you're taking notes... Do this another time, but write down heavenly places. And then I want you to go and count every time Paul says heavenly places in the book of Ephesians. And read, read what he says, but that's for another time. But go ahead, take that tidbit. So we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It sounds almost out of reach. Like, what does that mean? Well, Paul helps us out here, and he gives us a list. And this is, this, these are the blessings that source everything else. This is all in chapter 1. We have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So by his choice, he chose us. We've done nothing. We also have redemption through the blood of Christ, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses. He has made known to us the mystery of his will in Christ, which is to unite all things in Christ, both the things in heaven and on earth. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance because we were predestined according to him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The one who accomplishes everything he wants to accomplish has called you unto himself. You're here today because of him. Remember that. After believing him and his word of truth, we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, all to the praise of his glory. This inheritance that will be ours is our completed redemption. And we've been sealed with the Spirit now, marked by God, so that we know we're his, and he's with us till the end. Furthermore, Christ has been seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion and has been made the head of the church. He's our head, and we're his body. And if Christ is our head and we are his body, then understand this. He rules the entire world through us. Paul says that we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. A head without a body is worthless. And in grace, Christ chooses us to be his body, we are his hands and his feet. We demonstrate who he is to all the cosmos. He is ruling and reigning today through us. Then in chapter 2, Paul emphasizes that, again, that everything we have is from God. By making clear to us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's another heavenly places for you. We were dead, church, dead. Dead people don't do anything good. They can't. And it says God made us alive. He chose to make us alive. And not only that, but he's raised us up to be seated with him now in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so we're with him. We're with him. We have an actual place in the throne room of God because of Christ. Paul then doubles down that every gift that we have received in Christ was by his choosing, not ours. Again, dead people are dead. They choose nothing. Not only that, but we who were far off, Gentiles, we have been brought near. Christ is our peace, not only with God the Father, but with the people of God. In one body, that is in Christ's body, through the cross, God has made one new man from the two, the two being Jews and Gentiles. He has taken Jews who rightly possess the covenants, the promises, the law, the prophets, and he has taken us Gentiles who have no inheritance in God. For we were strangers to all those things. We were foreigners to the people of God. And he has made us to be one man in Christ. This is the mystery of the gospel, by the way. The engrafting of the Gentiles to the people of God. We are the mystery of the gospel. And we've done nothing. We've only received by his choosing. We now belong to God and we now share in the inheritance of Christ. And we move into chapter 3. Paul tells us that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. This is how Jesus rules and reigns through us because we are the living demonstration of his calling, his election, his love, his mercy, and his grace. And so we declare to the whole world who God is just by our existence. Just by the church being the church, we reveal the manifold wisdom of God. We as his body reveal God's glorious wisdom and his righteous ways. All because of his eternal purpose in Christ. His eternal purpose. It's been the plan the whole time. We've done nothing. So how is it then that we display God's power and wisdom? Well, as I've said, it's just by being the church, but specifically... It's because we've been named as his children and he has given us his spirit so that we might be strengthened by his power. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that now lives within us and the same spirit that has sealed us for the day of redemption. This is how we, the church, are the fullness of him who fills all in all. We show this to the world. So we have to understand this, church, that he has given us his power, his wisdom, his love, so that we would display his power, his wisdom, and his love to all of creation, to the things that are above and to the things that are below. Truly, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. We have been filled by God so that we might demonstrate his fullness. That is orthodoxy. That is what we must believe. This is the truth of what God has done for us, what he is doing for us, and what he has promised to do for us. 
We have to hold on to that and understand that how then we live is always a reflection of what God has done. And so now we get into the transition of the letter in chapter 4. And so we begin to see what orthopraxy looks like. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let the reader understand what the calling is. It's everything I just listed in the previous three chapters. That's our calling. And so he's saying, walk in a manner worthy of all that God has done for you. If we believe all that to be true, then it must flesh itself out. Paul continues then, encouraging us, exhorting us to a unity in the faith because that is our maturity. Our maturity is measured by our unity, by a growing together into Christ who is the head. Maturity only has one direction and it's towards Christ. To accomplish this maturity, this sanctification, Christ has given to the church various giftings various offices so that we all grow into him who is the head and because our aim is maturity in Christ Paul writes verse 17 now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Truly, God wants us to walk in such a way that demonstrates to all that he is holy and that he is righteous, and that he has done a real work in the church by giving us himself. And so we must take off the old, put it to death. It has been crucified with Christ, and walk in the newness of life. Don't forget that when we get into the household. In chapter 5, so we're close now. In chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And his offering was pleasing to God the Father because he did it in faith. Not in compulsion, but in loving obedience to his good, good Father. And because of that, Paul then instructs the church to flee sexual immorality, impurity, and the filthiness that defines the world. In verse 15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We have been exhorted, church, not to be stupid. The world is foolish, but we've been granted love, wisdom, and power from on high. Far be it from us to remain gullible to the schemes of the devil and the ways of the world. Far be it from us to think we're wise in our own minds. We must see the standard of God. We must understand what the will of the Lord is. And so now, and now we will see what is God's standard for the household. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Notice, notice the command, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It is God's good design that a wife submit to her own husband. Notice this does not say that any woman is supposed to submit to any man. This is quite obvious from the natural ordering of God's world. We intuitively understand this. Not all of our intuition is good, but this one would be right. Imagine how inappropriate it would be for a queen, for a queen in all her dignity and honor to submit to some foolish drunkard just because he be a man. How unnatural would that be? So the criteria then for submission is marriage. If a woman has married a worthless man, which happens all the time, by the way, his worthlessness does not excuse her from submitting to him. It is the covenant of marriage that now determines whether or not a woman is to submit to a man. It is also God's good design that a wife submit to her husband in the same way, the same way that she would submit to Christ. And this qualification is twofold, okay? Firstly, on the one hand, God intends that a wife submit to her own husband in everything. And it says that. Just like the church must submit to Christ in everything. Verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Everything really means everything. But not only that, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3. And so if you think Paul's a little off, know that the Apostle Peter says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So the standard is quite clear. A woman 
ought to submit to her husband in everything. But there's one last fold to this twofold qualification. In obeying her own husband, a wife is actually obeying Christ. So the standard of her obedience is measured by the standard of Christ himself. So what this means then is that, wives, you must obey your husband in everything so long as it is in submission to Christ. If your husband demands that you sin, you must obey God and not man. You must obey God. And yet, God has said, wives, submit to your husbands in everything. There's no real tension. You obey so long as it is in keeping with the law of God. So what this means, I know I'm going to be, I, I, I assume I'm, push, I'm stepping toes on toes, but that's okay. Paul has far more to say about husbands than he does wives. So it's coming to us. A husband has the final say in the home so long as his say is in keeping with the law of Christ. Okay? A husband has the final say in the home so long as his say is in keeping with Christ. Now, a wife may now be asking, why do I have to be the one to submit? Well, we see in verse 23 that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And you might think, well, why is that so? Paul writes to the church at Corinth that a man, that, excuse me, that man was not created for woman, but woman for man. In other words, the creation order matters. He's appealing to Genesis. And that pattern is the pattern for everything. From the very beginning, there has been a hierarchy for the home. We live in a world today that really wants to demolish things like hierarchies. But don't, we, we, we cannot let the changing of definitions and words happening at large actually change how we read the Bible and what God has clearly called us to do and what he has called us to believe. There has been a hierarchy in the, for the home established since the beginning. But please understand that this is a hierarchy of rank and role, not of worth. A wife does not have less value or worth than her husband. She is just as precious in the eyes of God as any man would be. But nevertheless, the hierarchy exists. And so I want you, I'm going to be very careful, but I'm going to tell you this. Again, don't let the world inform your use of words. The Bible defines everything in truth for us. We at Rivertown both affirm and confess that God has designed the household to be patriarchal. Patriarchy simply means father rule. God has designed the household to be father ruled in order to reflect his rule as the good father overall. The patriarchy was God's design all the while because he rules over all as father. Doesn't mean it can't be corrupted. Doesn't mean that men don't sin. Doesn't mean that there are, aren't worthless men who shouldn't be wielding this sort of power. But none of those things disqualify the fact that this is how God has designed the world. This is how he has designed the household. And we must press in to understanding this and to in fulfilling our roles and responsibilities in the home, whether you are a husband, a wife, or a child, we must take him at his word and trust him in faith 
and look back to all the gifts he's given us to do this, all the blessings he's given us in Christ. And so now that we understand that indeed the household is patriarchal by God's design, it is father-ruled, we turn to husbands. We turn to husbands. Verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Again, God has wisely ordained that it is husbands who lead their homes. Their leading, however, must be done in love. We must love our wives as Christ loved the church. So what does this mean for us then? Love, according to God and his word, is much less a feeling or an emotion and is much more an action. Love is something you do. Therefore, the Lord gives us an objective standard for loving our wives. We have a perfect, objective, permanent standard. That standard is Christ, always. So then, husbands, our love, in order to be Christ-like, must consist of the giving up of ourselves to our wives and for our wives in order for her to be more holy and more beautiful than she was before. Our love must sanctify her by washing her with the word of God and must be a kind of love that purifies her rather than defiling her. So the question we must ask ourselves today, husbands, and if you refuse to ask yourself the question, then you'll never answer the question. Do you rule your home in such a way that your wife is more Christ-like or less? Is your wife more godly or less because of you? Is she more spiritually beautiful because of you or less? And we have to ask these questions because believe it or not, you are always leading your home, whether you know it or not. You're always leading, even when you're not leading, if you understand what I mean. Some men lead their wives to spiritual poverty because of their apathy, or because of their pride, or because of their anger or because of their own debauchery. You name it. A man will either lead in the strength and in the love of Christ and his household will be benefited or he will walk in the flesh and have no care for them and only for himself and he will lead his family astray. In both cases, he's leading them somewhere. So what kind of husband are you today? What kind of husband are you? And if you don't know, what what does it look like to wash my wife in the water of the word? What does it look like to make her more beautiful? Come talk to me. Come talk to any of the pastors of this church. You're not alone in this. We're quite familiar with the the false standard in the world that says men should just work in the background, not be present. 
or that we're, we're very familiar that we have a world that wants to demonize any act of masculinity. But we must resist those temptations, the temptations within and the temptations without because the standard is Christ. And if you want to lead your homes, it starts with you leading your wives. Verse 28, in the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There, Paul has again appealed to Genesis. Adam says this after Eve was created for him. So here, Paul is using that illustration from Genesis, and he's reminding us that our wives are actually our bodies. In the same way that we, the church, are Christ's body. Christ does not hate us, but he loves us. He nourishes us. He cherishes us. We must do the same for our wives. This sort of love and care is not ethereal either, but it must flesh itself out. We must care for the well-being of our wives in such a way that they actually feel loved, that they actually feel nourished, and they actually feel cherished. Men, husbands, buy her the flowers. Buy her the book. Buy her the dress. Take her to her favorite restaurant. Remind her that she is loved. This is our responsibility. Jesus lavishes us with his best gifts. Always. We must do the same. We must do the same. So what this means is that we must find, wisely find, the balance of not giving our wife everything she wants, for that would only lead to the indulgence of the flesh. And nor does Jesus give us everything we think we want. But it does mean we must give our wives more than she needs so that she truly feels loved and cared for. Go above and beyond Think more highly of her than you do yourself. And when you love her like that, you're actually loving yourself because she is your body. And finally for husbands, verses 32 through 33, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is always pointing to this greater picture of Christ and the church. Always. Therefore, husbands must love their wives as Christ loves the church. For she is our body, just as we are Christ's. And wives, you must, must, must respect your husband. We do not respond to Christ with bickering or complaining or nagging. The Proverbs even say that a nagging wife's like a dripping roof. Well, actually, the, the roof, the dripping roof's better than the nagging wife. Okay? God said that, not me. <laughs> All right? We don't respond to Christ that way. How, how foolish would that be? Wives, even when your husband's a moron... <laughs> Don't respond that way to him. But know that you are serving and honoring and loving Christ as you serve and honor and love your husband. That is respect. All those blessings we saw in chapters 1 through 3 are real. Christ has done that for us, his church. How important and magnificent is it then that our marriage actually reflects that reality? Don't lose that. 
Your marriage is always communicating Christ's goodness to his people, the church. Don't lose sight of that. Your marriage is not about you primarily, but about Christ and his real dying love for his people. A kind of love that sacrifices itself, but then in power is raised to the newness of life and redemption. May our marriages reflect that always. Christ is worthy to be honored in our marriage covenant. And now we're in the home stretch, I promise. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. God has designed the household in such a way that children must obey their parents. The qualification given in the Lord simply means that the command is from God himself and is enforced by his authority. So children must obey their parents in all things so long as it is in keeping with the righteous standard of God. Okay? It's the same, so the same thing we communicated earlier about wives submitting to their husbands, same standard applies to children in their obedience in the home. Children must obey their parents in all things so long as it is in keeping with the law of Christ. Paul says this quite uh, plainly to the church at Colossae. He says, children, obey, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Paul then reminds the church of the law of God. So understand this. God's law is good. He's writing to Gentiles who did not previously have the law. And he's quoting one of the Ten Commandments. He's quoting the Decalogue. And he's ensuring them that the promise of the commandment is still alive and well. God, in his great wisdom and in his goodness, has given us both precepts and promises, rules and rewards, commandments and consolations. His laws are good, and he delights to see us keep them in faith. So for all of us here, in the mor- here this morning, because we're all children, so- we're someone's child, let us take God at his word and bank on his promises. And for children still in the home... You may be coloring or drawing right now, but obey your parents. And in doing so, you are obeying Christ. In our last verse this morning, verse 4, this does regard parenting in general, but please note that Paul addresses fathers. Paul addresses fathers because it is obvious what we've already seen, that the household is father-ruled. So the responsibility for our children primarily rests on our shoulders, dads. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers, as we create the habitat for our homes, what does discipline and instruction look like well we have to understand this is a single command the command is to not provoke our children but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord they're not two separate commands but they have two clauses so the first clause we must not provoke them to anger some translations say exasperate them okay don't entice them to anger second clause we must bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If we, if we separate the two, okay, we are in danger of falling into one of two ditches. The first ditch is this. If you only take the first clause seriously, then you'll never actually discipline your, your kid for fear of their reaction. And in that scenario, you are allowing your child's emotions to direct the household rather than God's good standard. The other ditch to fall in 
is completely disregarding the disposition and the personality of your child in order to maintain some standard that you have contrived in your own mind rather than the standard given by God. But God gives us one command. Don't lead them to anger, but raise them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So in order to avoid the ditches, we have to know what his good, right standard is. And this is a summary of it. We must discipline our children with the viewpoint of their growth in the Lord. This does two things. It humbles us. It humbles us because it forces us as parents to think spiritually rather than simply reacting in the moment. And two, it reminds us that we discipline them for their benefit and their ultimate good. We don't discipline them capriciously or arbitrarily. But that discipline has an aim, and the aim is Christ. Now this one, I'd, someone would write about me in the paper if they know what I'm about to say. Someone not in this church. God's standard also requires that we discipline our children with pain. If it is not painful, then it is not biblical discipline. And if we do not discipline our children biblically, then God says we actually hate our children. There's ample evidence in the scriptures for this, and I'm going to provide it. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. What he's saying is, that word actually tr translates as the B word, illegitimate sons, which I'm not going to say. If you don't, aren't disciplined, then you're not a son. You're illegitimate. You're someone else's kid. That's what the word actually means here. Discipline proves that you are a son of the Father disciplining you. It goes on to say, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God disciplines us that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. For the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If God disciplines us in this way, who are we to think we shouldn't discipline our own children this way? Proverb, the author of Proverbs says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Again, in Proverbs 22, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Your child is a sinner. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And lastly, many take those terms to mean something they don't mean. There are a plethora of teachers out there who will tell you the rod is not really the rod but it means some kind of care and gentleness. I find that very hard to believe. Here's why. The term in Hebrew for discipline is musar. It's the same, in the New Testament Greek, the term is paideia. This word for discipline can also be translated as punishment. In fact, in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, when Pontius Pilate punishes Jesus with flogging, the word is paideia. 
Literally, Jesus is disciplined by Pontius Pilate with flogging. Now, what I'm not saying is we flog our children, okay? But what I am saying is let us swim in the good word of God and actually see it for what it means. Discipline is painful. And God disciplines the children he loves. He punishes us. That's real. But he does it to produce in us righteousness. What kind of parents would we be if we ignore the iniquity of our children? If we ignore their trespasses and transgressions? What are we teaching them about God? Finally, we must instruct them in Christ. Despite what the modernists and the postmodernists say, it's not up to your child to figure out who they are. God has appointed that you, primarily fathers, but you also mothers, you tell them who they are. And who are they? They are children born to Christian parents. And therefore, they too are recipients of all God's covenant promises. Because we who were once strangers to God and his promises, we have been brought near in Christ and have been made the people of God. To us now belongs all the blessings, the promises, and the covenants. We have been made children of Abraham by faith in Christ. And because God keeps his word to a thousand generations, God has called our children to be recipients of these same promises. Therefore, it is our duty to raise them and educate them as Christians. There is no arbitrary age limit or some mythical age of accountability. Don't treat them as a foreigner in your own home but rather as a co-heir with Christ. We must see our children as heirs of God today and raise them accordingly. If Babylon becomes their teacher, do not be surprised if they turn out like Babylonians. But if Christ is their teacher through you, then God's promise to be their God as he is yours will most certainly come to pass. Fathers, raise your children faithfully and do not give up the promises are yours and therefore the promises are theirs read the bible to them sing hymns with them discipline them for their transgressions in all things teach them to look to christ and so as we bring it all to a close Wives, husbands, children, parents, to all of us in the room, may we receive all that God has instructed us. May we receive his commandments with faith, knowing that he has given us his, his very best in Christ Jesus. We are his and he is ours. And so we do this in faith. Not only that, but let us love the neighbors in our own household well. They're your first neighbor. We can do this, we can do this if we heed his instructions. But if you see his standard today and you think that's too much or I'm not good enough, well, that's, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. None of us are good enough. But God gives us his standard that he might humble us and that we might rely on him and him alone. He will accomplish all that concerns us. We are Christ's church today. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have received his gifts of love, grace, mercy, and power. Truly, he is with us. So let us walk in faith according to his word. Let's pray. Father, worthy are you of all of our praise and adoration. Truly, we have been blessed with every spiritual gift in Christ in the heavenly places. It's all ours. 
And the Spirit now testifies to us your goodness and your grace and is a seal of the redemption to come where we will be revealed with you before all the world. May we walk according to our calling. May we embrace your commands to us this morning. Though they are hard, we trust that you are producing real godliness and righteousness in us by the power of your spirit. That you are conforming us as a church into your image and we know that that demands our households too be conformed to your image. May we walk in faith and obedience unto you all the days of our lives. Amen.